Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the Ascension of Our Lord, May 16th, 2021, is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments regarding today's message, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website at faithlutheran-aflc.org. Good morning again. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the epistle lesson appointed for Ascension Sunday. The sermon text is taken from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. can be found on page 1690 of your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When they had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, whom was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Heavenly Father, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Sequels are never as good as the original movie. From my perspective, there are only two exceptions to this statement. First, The Empire Strikes Back is definitively a better movie than Star Wars A New Hope. There's beyond argument, just leave it there. Second, if you follow weird entertainment discussions on social media, apparently, Paddington 2 is one of the best movies ever made. I can neither confirm nor deny those rumors, but it's been all over social media for two weeks now, and I don't understand it at all. Beyond that, the history of film is littered with examples of sequels that should not have been made. You're all thinking of one right now. Everyone's nodding, and you're right there. So we don't even need examples. If you're, going to do, if you're going to see a sequel, you're basically and inevitably setting yourself up for disappointment. It's almost a foregone conclusion. And what's interesting is that it seems to be exactly the case as we start the book of Acts. Is Luke setting us all up for disappointment with the second volume in his writing? How could he possibly top his first book? Luke is perhaps the most detail-oriented of the four Gospels, 
It is a rich narrative of the life of Jesus Christ and his completed work of redemption. Luke contains my personal favorite post-resurrection appearance, Jesus on the road to Emmaus. The book of Acts can't possibly be as good as Luke is, right? Well, to top it all off, at the very beginning of the book, our New Testament lesson for this morning, Luke removes the main character. <coughs> That's pretty much a bona fide recipe for failure. Now, just so we're all on the same page, and especially for those of you who are Harry Potter fans, imagine if J.K. Rowling had killed off Harry Potter after the second book. Would the rest of the series have even mattered to those of you who follow that? This is basically what Jesus does. Now, he doesn't kill off, or Luke does. He doesn't kill off Jesus, but he takes him into heaven. Jesus is gone for the whole book. So what are we to do today in the church as we consider the significance of Jesus' ascension? It's a weird series of events that leads us to the ordinary part of the church here, the season of Trinity. Jesus leaves... Next week, the Holy Spirit shows up at Pentecost, and the rest of the church year is in the hands of the church as we carry the Word of God with us. But is that really all that the ascension of Jesus Christ is about? Is Jesus just getting out of the way so the church can do its job? <clears throat> as it turns out, that's not the case at all. In fact, as we learned this morning, the ascension is all about Jesus' power not about Jesus' absence. And so turning our eyes back to Acts 1 this morning, we first see that the ascension is all about the power of the resurrection. So this will be the most basic and straightforward thing I say to you all morning, but you can't have the ascension of Jesus without the resurrection of Jesus. Not possible. That's because the resurrection is central to everything Jesus did and taught. And that's the significance of the first verse of the book of Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus' life, as recorded by the Gospels, was the beginning of his teaching and ministry. It is punctuated and finds its culmination in the resurrection. Jesus' death atones for our sins. Jesus' resurrection is the proof that he conquered death, but it is also the demonstration of his divine power. And this is the crucial part of the resurrection for us this morning. Only God rises from the dead. A human doesn't. Only God emerges from the torturous trial and beating and from the crucifixion unscathed. Only God can be gracious and merciful while simultaneously satisfying his own need for justice for our sins. But what does Jesus' ascension have to do with all of these great benefits of the resurrection besides come after the resurrection in chronological order. What we need to start thinking about at this moment is that as Jesus ascends into heaven, he is doing so to act in his divine power for the benefit of his church. 
Jesus emerges from the tomb definitively as the God of the entire universe. And so that as Jesus now ascends into heaven, everything he does, he does as our Savior and our victor over sin, death, and the devil, but he does so also as the God of the universe. And that's what we're going to keep in mind this morning. So second, Jesus' ascension demonstrates to us the power of his absence. Since the dawn of the church, the church has been preoccupied with earthly power. We see here in Acts that it stems from the nationalistic tendencies of the Jews going back to the physical land of Israel. Even the disciples who have spent three years with Jesus hearing him teach about the kingdom of God miss the mark. Even after the crucifixion, even after the resurrection, even after all of the miracles and all of the sermons, their question here in Acts to Jesus is, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples are still preoccupied with the acquisition and the expression of earthly power. And to be honest, for the next 2,000 years, the church follows in their footsteps. We've seen it in the Roman Catholic papacy. The Roman Catholic Church was Europe's largest landowner at the time of Martin Luther and the Reformation. And it all comes back to the ruling and reigning of one man in that church body. The acquisition and preoccupation of earthly power. But lest we stop and pick only on the Roman Catholics, we see it also in the American church's mirror of the papacy with celebrity pastor culture. Go to any megachurch with a celebrity pastor personality and what you will find is that individual's vision for the church is not to be questioned and not to be contradicted while they are in charge, while they are in power in the church. The American church loves a celebrity. Absolutely love it. We've also seen it in the last several decades in the American church's uncomfortable partnership with party politics, both on the right and on the left. We have somehow convinced ourselves that the only way to advance the gospel in America is to make sure that our chosen party is the one in power. It's not been a healthy partnership for the churches on the left, it's not been a healthy partnership for the churches on the right. Because no matter what, when the church focuses on earthly power, it always gets burned. During the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church walked away from clear biblical truth. And in the time that has been since 500 years ago, the Roman Catholic Church has been plagued by scandals that stem directly from this faulty doctrine and is now in danger at this moment of fracturing yet again in some European countries. Celebrity pastors either succumb to sin or walk away from the faith at an alarming rate, destroying souls in their wake. 
You want to know how to become more famous than you are as a celebrity pastor? All you need to do is send out a tweet about how you no longer believe the Bible. You will be celebrated. You will have a parade for you. That's the way it works. Party politics always devours the church. It is my personal assessment in observing the last 50 years of American history that the church has been used by both the left and the right for a cheap source of votes. The church always chases after the carrot on the stick when it comes to politics. The message of Acts, and especially here in Acts chapter 1, is that Christians ought not to chase after earthly power because earthly power belongs to Jesus. He is in control, and this is once again demonstrated by the power of the resurrection. But the church does have power, and we should have our ears perked up when we hear Acts 1.8. The church does have power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. The power the church has is the power of the message of the gospel, and this is entirely integral to the work and mission of the church. The gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, is the truth of eternity. The message of the gospel is the message of the reality that Jesus Christ, in fact, and in history, has died and risen again. It is the message that Jesus' death, in fact, and in history, atones for our sins, and his resurrection destroys death. And the gospel is the message that this gift is available to all and delivers those who believe, those who receive it, into eternity with God. But not only is the message of the gospel the truth of eternity, it is also the truth about our sin. I think Christians far too often bristle at the accusation that most Christians are hypocrites. Now, to be sure... It's pretty low-hanging fruit as far as criticisms go of the church by the world. It's kind of a throwaway. It takes no effort at all to call anyone a hypocrite because our sin makes us hypocrites. That's what it does. And we have ample evidence in history that many Christians are, in fact, hypocrites. We are tremendously good at, practice, at not practicing what we preach. But we also fail to recognize that it is the message of law and gospel central to the Christian faith that keeps us from being hypocrites. If we understand that God's law, that God's standard of perfection is primarily for us, then we will understand that what God demands from us is repentance. And if we understand that God's message of gospel, that our sins are forgiven for the sake of Jesus Christ, is also for us, then the message we have to give to the world is that you are forgiven just as we 
are forgiven. That the blood of Jesus Christ is for you as it is for us. The message of the church ought never be that we are better than you. The message of the church should be we have received this gift and it is also for you. Our call by Jesus to be witnesses is a call for us to testify of the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection, but also of the personal impact Jesus' death and resurrection has on each one of our lives. The power we receive from the Holy Spirit because of Jesus' ascension, because of Pentecost, is a power to proclaim the forgiveness of sins that each of us has personally received. Finally then, Jesus' ascension speaks to us of the power of Jesus' return. There's this curious exchange at the end of our New Testament lesson this morning between, G or between the disciples and the angels. And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, I kind of chuckle when I read this exchange because what did the angels expect the disciples to be doing in this moment? If Jesus suddenly takes this invisible elevator up into the sky, every one of the disciples is going to be going, wondering what's going on. It's an entirely natural response. But as we wonder about the rule and reign of Jesus, which is one, what each and every one of us do every single day that we can't see him, the message for the church is that he's coming back. Now think about that for just a moment. Think about your own life for just a moment. When was the last time if you're honest, that you doubted God's sovereignty? When was the last time you doubted God's will for your life? When was the last time you questioned what he was doing and wondered if he cared or if he even was there? That moment is you standing in Israel, mouth wide open, staring into the sky, wondering what is going on. Where is Jesus? What is he doing when it really matters? Think of the disciples' emotions. For 40 days, they had their Savior, their Lord, restored to them. Think of the joy in the elation, in the celebration, it's finally going to happen. And then in one moment, whoosh, there he goes. Every time you suffer, every time you bend and you feel like breaking or you actually break, that's 
your moment. Where is Jesus when it matters? What is he doing? How can this be anything but bad news for the church? The message here of the angels to those disciples in Israel changes our perspective. Jesus is returning. He's returning in the exact manner he left. In sure, that involves clouds and skies and celebration, but what they really mean is that Jesus is returning in all his divine power and glory. And when Jesus comes back, he ushers creation into eternity. When Jesus comes back, he returns for good. Time ends. Sin ends. Suffering ends. And eternity begins. Our resurrected bodies will be free from sin, free from pain, free from injury, free from sorrow. Creation will be remade. It will cease to groan and be contaminated by sin. So consider this. As Jesus leaves at the ascension, he is fully God and fully man. The victor over sin, death, and the devil. That is definitive. The cross and the empty tomb prove it. But we, we who are left will see exactly what that looks like on judgment day when Jesus returns to take his true church full of people who have faith in him into eternity. Jesus has ascended. Jesus is ascended at this very moment. We spend so much of the church here, so much of our time as Christians, not thinking about this glorious reality. Jesus has ascended, but he's not absent. He is still with you. He's there on the altar in the bread and wine of communion. He's there with his word Delivering it by his spirit into your minds and into your hearts. And Jesus is in your very life right now. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. Jesus has ascended. And that means right now... He is ruling and reigning over creation in his divine power for you. We confess that in the creed every week. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The triune God, his sustaining over all creation is for you. Jesus is active in that. Because Jesus has ascended. And what that means is that he is constantly before the Heavenly Father, reminding him of his completed work of redemption. 
Just as Jesus showed his hands and his side and his feet to Thomas, Jesus is in heaven constantly showing his hand and his side and his feet to the heavenly Father. And the Father looks at Jesus and he delights to forgive your sins because of Jesus. It is good for you, it's good for me, it is good for all of us to think about Jesus' ascension because so much of our daily lives as Christians is impacted by it. The Savior who died for you and who rose again is now the Savior who has ascended and is ruling and reigning and interceding for us the right hand of God. The Savior who has ascended is serving even now as your high priest. Because he loves you and because he's coming back for you. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.